they're still going to look at them as though they're like this. Oh, what a good story. Oh, that, you know, they're this Mountain West team. Y'all, they've been in the Big 12. They've won Big 12 titles. They've beaten great programs. Always College Football with Greg McElroy is presented by AT&T 5G. Too much college football is never too much with AT&T 5G. Hello and welcome in. We are on the eve of leaving for Los Angeles. All of us here on the Always College Football team. We're heading to Los Angeles a little bit more than 24 hours from now, so we are excited, man. It's Thursday. It's January 5th. We have a lot that we need to get to, and we're very, very, very much looking forward to our time on the West Coast. We have so much in store for you as it relates to our coverage from the National Championship game. We got incredible guests. We got some great, great both dog and horn frog or hypnotoad guests that are lined up in preparation of joining us on Sunday's show, one of them might be an NFL Hall of Famer uh, and you know a former teammate of mine. So he's probably going to be with us at some point. Plus, we got some great ESPN guests lined up, and then we're going to put Coobs and Jack Foster to work. They're going to they don't just get a free ticket to Santa Monica. We're going to go see if we can't find some other guests on the prowl. I mean, it is Hollywood after all. Certainly, don't we want to hear from Leonardo DiCaprio on what he thinks about TCU's magical run? Speaking of magical runs, we're going to kind of put in perspective what TCU's run is going to look like. And I'm continuing to read about how they're the David versus the Goliath. Well, hang on. Are we, has anyone that's writing these articles, have they watched TCU this year? That's one question that we're going to have to answer today because if you watch them, they don't give off the David impression to me whatsoever. I think it's Goliath versus Goliath in some aspects. I'll tell you why. And... Y'all, it's the mailbag. We've gotten some great ones in, especially on some of the teams that will be competing for the championship here coming up in just a couple days. So let's not waste any more of your time. Let's put this championship runs underdog story into perspective because it's time for Let's Talk About It presented by AT&T 5G. All right, it's been documented. TCU is somewhere in the vicinity of a two-touchdown underdog to win their first national championship in 83 years. Now, does that matter to you? Should it matter to you? No, because there have been bigger upsets in championship settings, including bigger upsets that occurred in the National Football League. And if you see a two-touchdown favorite in the National Football League, I mean, and it's not the Texans on the losing side, That should tell you all you need to know. How about this to kind of put things in perspective? What TCU's championship win might look like? They were a 200 to 1 underdog coming into the season. Other 200 to 1 underdogs that have won the championship outright Trevor Immelman in the 2008 Masters, uh, a handful of others, I might add, believe it or not. 200 to 1 is actually a very. In some ways, it's kind of a favorable odds. I don't know why. Leicester City, they had listed at 5,000 to 1. That was the longest long shot that I could find when looking at some of the biggest performances. That was massive. 5,000 to 1. U.S. Hockey in 1980, they were 1,000 to 1 to win the gold medal. In the Olympics, of course, the miracle on ice. Some other long, long, long shots. Mind that bird at 50 to 1 winning the 2009 Kentucky Derby. The Buster Douglas upsetting Mike Tyson at 42 to 1. Appalachian State against Michigan. When you look at the point spread, one of the biggest we've ever seen. 2007, Stanford over USC, a 41 point underdog that went and took care of business against Pete Carroll 
and the Trojans. So there's a handful of examples in which you find the longest of long shots. But when you look at football in particular, we referenced a couple games in the regular season, not necessarily, I don't think they're necessarily applicable when you think about exactly where they're at. Of course, 200 to one is massive, but when you really think about football, football, there's not as many teams that you feel like could potentially win it. And you think about college football in particular, man, it's really hasn't been a lot of parody at the top of the sport in quite a while. Maybe this performance from TCU is what starts to change that, all right? But keeping things in perspective, the New York Jets beat the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl three. You might famously remember that as Joe Namath calling his shot, saying, we're going to win, I guarantee it, or whatever it is, or something along the lines of that. Some of that is lost in translation. I don't know if he was quite as bold as the... I guess newspapers make it seem, but I kind of lean into it. I'm a diehard Joe Namath guy, so I wish he would have said, I'll fight anybody that thinks we won't win, I guarantee it. That's the way I'm going to interpret it. But either way, they were 18-point dogs up against the Baltimore Colts. Obviously, they ultimately won the championship in what became arguably the biggest game in the history of the NFL-AFL because that ultimately led to the merger. That basically everyone thought the Colts were just going to steamroll. Clearly, the Jets had other plans. Looking at some other things as well. The New York Giants beating the undefeated New England Patriots back in Super Bowl 42. Also very interesting. They were 14-point dogs in that game. I don't think that's right, but that's what they said. Doesn't feel right to me. However, one that I do know is right, because I've confirmed it from like six or seven different sources, when the Patriots beat the uh, St. Louis Rams almost said the Los Angeles Rams. Look, I'm getting better. St. Louis Rams and the greatest show on turf. That was back in the 2002 Super Bowl. This was Tom Brady's breakthrough performance, his first championship. They were 14 point dogs and ultimately won it outright. So there are plenty of examples in which teams are 14 point dogs that have gone on to ultimately win the championship. And that's exactly where TCU lands right now. But if you look at college football, we've never seen a long shot quite this long win the national championship. I've pulled the five longest long shots in the history of college football that ultimately went on to win the whole thing. thing. Let's start at number five, the Ohio State Buckeyes in 2002. They were 19 to one early in the season. Now, 2001 was a tough year for the Buckeyes. It was a transition year. Jim Trestle came in, went just seven and five in his first year. And then they, of course, were playing against the Miami Hurricanes. They had gone into the season on a 34-game win streak, and they had one of the most talent-rich rosters we've ever seen in college football. In the national championship game alone, they were 12-point favorites over the Ohio State Buckeyes. And of course, as we all remember it, whether you think it was pass interference or not, the Buckeyes were ultimately the champions. Uh, A year later, the USC Trojans, the start of what became a bit of a dynasty for USC for their might have been a short-lived dynasty, but an impressive one nonetheless. They were good in 2002. Carson Palmer was their quarterback in 2002. They went and they won the Orange Bowl against Iowa. So there were some expectations of USC in 2003 being pretty good. But man, who's this Matt Leinart guy? Who is Reggie Bush? I don't know if those guys can play. They entered the season at 
20 to one. Of course, they went all the way through it, shut out so many good teams along the way, beat Auburn badly in the season opener. That was the number six ranked Auburn team at that time. They finished 12 and one with the Rose Bowl victory against Michigan. Of course, Leinert went on to win the Heisman Trophy in 2004 after that was an incredible season. But in 2003, of course, Jason White and Oklahoma, they were the preseason favorites that year. USC ultimately won the whole dang thing. The 2019 LSU Tigers were the third longest odds that ultimately ended up winning. They were 33 to 1, which to me is crazy because if you look at LSU, LSU has constantly had really talented rosters, right? But if you look at 2018, they finished 10 and 3, they finished 15th in the poll, and they had just about everybody coming back off that roster. How the heck was this team, of course, hindsight's 2020. How the heck was this team 33 to 1? Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Well, LSU ultimately went out there had probably one of the best performances we've ever seen from a team from start to finish on the year. They, of course, finished it by winning 41-16 over Clemson in the national championship. And I still think to this day, it's probably the best team I've ever seen with my own two eyes. The 2014 Ohio State Buckeyes came in at number two. Shockingly, I think that you might have been able to get even longer odds after their week two performance. You think about that week two performance, they sluggishly get through Navy and they lose convincingly to Virginia Tech there in the second week of the season. They were 40 to one. Ohio State obviously went on to win the national championship, but not with the guy that actually ended up filling in. That would be JT Barrett. It was actually Cardale Jones. The third string quarterback coming into the fall because Braxton Miller got hurt, JT Barrett got hurt, in comes Cardale Jones, and they ride alongside Zeke Elliott, an amazing offensive line, a ridiculously talented cast of wide receivers, and a great, great group defensively with an unbelievable edge presence in Joey Bosa, great players at the second level, and unbelievable players in the back end. A ridiculously talent rich roster at 40 to 1. Seems insane to think that you could get that kind of value right now. And then finally, the longest of the long shots, the Auburn Tigers at 50 to 1. Think about that for a second. Auburn in 2010, the longest long shot to ever win the national championship, and they were 50 to 1. And what did I tell you TCU was? 200 to 1. That's how outrageous this is. What we've seen from TCU, of course, Auburn, Cam Newton, what a st- what a crazy year. I mean, you really think about it. They were eight and five the year before. Cam Newton wasn't even listed 
as a preseason Heisman odds, but he ultimately went on to win it. They beat number 12, South Carolina, number 12, Arkansas, number six, LSU, number nine, Alabama, number 18, South Carolina. That was in the SEC championship. And then obviously beat Oregon for the Natty. So you think about where Auburn was that year, the longest of the long shots. And to think TCU was four times longer than that. This is one of the great stories we've seen in college football. But in just a moment, I'm going to tell you why it's absolutely absurd that TCU Horn Frogs are being somewhat disrespected in the world of sports writers and, and analysts and all these other things because this team can flat out go. Y'all, TCU is not this Cinderella story. Now, I know it's. I just went through the longest of the long shots and I told you all the different gambling angles as to why it was the biggest long shot we've ever seen. Y'all, TCU has been a program in the last 15 years that has won a Rose Bowl, that has had undefeated seasons, that has had opportunities a la 2014, where they very easily could have won the national championship if they had gotten into the playoff. And some still to this day feel as though TCU should have gotten into the playoff. I, I think hindsight's 2020. We all very much remember the dominant performance that they had in the bowl game against Ole Miss, and that probably affects how we perceive that team. But who were you going to put them in over the eventual national champions, Ohio State? We're going to put them in over undefeated Florida State. We're going to put them in over the other two teams, both Alabama and Oregon. No, you weren't going to do that. So TCU, I think, was unfortunately, they finished that season ranked sixth. Great team, but ultimately didn't have enough to be able to push their way up into the playoff. But had they gotten in, do you really think that that would have been a team that would have felt like a Cinderella? You know, they backed it up the following year. They've done it time and time again. TCU is not some upstart program. They have been a consistently dominant program for the better part of the last decade and change. And if you really, they're still going to look at them as though they're like this, oh, what a good story. Oh, that you know, they're this Mountain West team. Y'all, they've been in the Big 12. They've won Big 12 titles. They've beaten great programs. They've given Ohio State all they wanted a couple years ago. That was back in, what, 2018. They played them in the third week of the season. They didn't have anywhere near the roster that Ohio State did. But if you look at the first three quarters of that game, that was a close ball game. TCU is a great program. Great. And has been for a very long time. Now, did things get a little bit stale at the end? of the Gary Patterson era? Yeah, sure, that's that's fair. But Sonny Dykes, you bring in Sonny Dykes and a guy that's been around and has been a head coach at multiple different spots, did a great job at SMU, and now has a capable quarterback, plus great weapons on the perimeter, plus a perennially underappreciated offensive line. I've called TCU games forever. And the offensive line has always been one of the most underappreciated groups in the country. They are athletic. They are physical. They, I wouldn't say that they're one of those groups that's going to just mow you off the football and they're going to look like the 95 Nebraska Cornhuskers. No, they're not that. But for what they're expected to be, they're very, very effective. They are able to get a lot of quality offensive linemen they are able to grow and develop, and that's the backbone and the bedrock of the TCU organization and has been forever. They're going to develop players 
They do an amazing job with their player development, and that's exactly why their offensive line is always very, very solid. Now, have there been examples and years in which they've been a little bit leaky? Sure, of course. But look at the performances that they've had this year against quality competition. And couple that with the fact that you have a very mobile quarterback that can help the offensive line because if those guys get beat, he can improvise and create on his own. You have excellent running backs that even if you're not getting super favorable looks defensively, they can make the first guy miss and be out the gate. And their offensive style, what Sonny Dykes is doing. Now, he's a product of the Mike Leach system, but there's a lot more Art Bryles Baylor than there is Mike Leach when you look at how TCU has gone about implementing their offense. They're going to get you real wide with their splits. They're going to create a lot of horizontal stretch with their wide receiver splits, which forces the defense to do one thing. They're going to say, hey, look, if you want to come out here and cover these awesome wide receivers that we have, come on, bring your safeties out, bring your corners out, bring your nickel back out. Fine. That nickel walks a little bit too wide. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to hand it off. And we feel pretty good that in our zone read scheme, let's say you put five guys out there to cover the four wide receivers. No problem whatsoever. That leaves six guys in the box. Guess what we're likely going to do? We're likely and against a six man box. We're probably going to hand it off, but we're going to read the end man on the line of scrimmage, which means we have five guys to block five and we have one guy that's getting red. Well, if that guy takes away the running back, guess what? Quarterback takes it to the house. If that guy stays wide and takes the quarterback, guess what? We're going to hand it to Kendra Miller or we're going to hand it to Amari DiMarcato, whoever's the starter in the national championship game. And if for whatever reason, the quarterback makes the wrong decision, no problem. Perfect. We'll hand it off. And guess what? Kendra Miller's done time and time again all season long. Make that first defender miss. Okay, you want to give us a late look where it looks like we need to hand it off, but that nickel's starting to get a little bit closer at the snap, and then he blitzes? Perfect. We'll take it. We'll catch it quickly. We'll fake it inside, and we'll throw a hitch route to Tay Barber, who's excellent with the ball in his hands. Y'all, this is a very difficult offense to defend, and the offensive line, while they make it go, they're aided by the looks that they have to run and protect Against And then on the defensive side, people look at this group as though, well, they're just not great against the run. Yes, statistically speaking, they've had bad performances against the run from time to time. But when taking away the run game has been a huge point of emphasis, how have they fared? They've fared pretty well against Texas. We knew that B. John Robinson, that was the dude that night, right? It's all about stopping B. John Robinson. Let Quinn Ewers beat us. Let these wide receivers beat us. But let's stop number five. That guy's one dude that could take this game over and there's nothing we can do about it. So they stopped him, though, and held him to his worst performance, arguably, in a Texas Longhorn uniform. So when it's an all-points bulletin for TCU, they've been pretty dang effective at the line of scrimmage. Now, they're athletic. They're not going to be able to just hold up for four quarters and 80 snaps defensively against Georgia's offensive line. Georgia's offensive line's got some road graders, but I'll tell you what they can do. They know how to shoot their shot at the second level. If you look at D winners, you look at this linebacker core, they do a really, really good job, really good job of hitting it from depth. So for instance, if you're engaged with the front line along the line of scrimmage, 
Guess what those secondary players are going to do? Guess what those linebackers are going to do at the second level? They're going to hit it, and they're going to hit it quickly. Hodge, Winters, all those guys do a really good job hitting it at the line of scrimmage and then finding, really, you find guys in the backfield from depth because the offensive line isn't even looking at it. Next thing you know, you have a run through. Next thing you know, you have a negative play. So I think that when you look at what Gillespie's done there as a defensive coordinator, he's got very athletic linebackers. He enables them, and he empowers them to run through and make plays, and they make a whole lot of them. We need to stop looking at TCU as if they're the little engine that could. This is a group that can go. They can score with great offensive personnel, receivers that can win matchups, receivers that have great length. So if, if it becomes a jump ball situation, they can go up and make the contested catches. They have elite running backs. They have an elite quarterback that does a great job within the offense, making good decisions, not just in the pass game, but also the run game as well. A very underappreciated offensive line that does an excellent job for what they need to be and an opportunistic defense that knows how to cover and that knows how to make plays with their second level defenders. This is not some program that just, you know, the stars aligned and here we are. This is a program that has been carefully built by Sonny Dykes, making sure that they play to their own strengths. And I'd be shocked if they didn't come to play and play at a really high level on Monday night in the national championship. You mentioned one thing. Um, it's not this Goli- David versus Goliath, but the one thing this TCU does not have is the star rankings, is the high recruiting profiles. If the Horn Frogs are able to win this, is this going to be the last true sign of parity in college football? Well, here's the thing about the star rankings. And this is not, look, I think the wonderful people at 247 on three ESPN, all these other folks. Like I think they all do an amazing job. All right. But what I've come to realize is that star rankings, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as the year goes along. Like I played with guys that were two stars um, before they were recruited. Like they were a two star athlete. And then all of a sudden, Oh, Hey, Bama offered them. And then now all of a sudden overnight, they become a four star. Like what, what changed or is it just because Bama extended an offer? Like, do we realize that the recruiting rankings and all these different stars and why do you think we keep continually having, Oh, well, this is the best ranking ever, best recruiting class ever because they're giving out more and more four and five stars. So when TCU extends an offer to a guy, guess what? The recruiting services are like, okay, well he was a three star. Then he's a three star now, but if Alabama or Ohio state or Georgia or USC extends an offer. They look at that three star and they're like, you know, we probably should add a fourth star. So, you know, clearly Nick Saban knows what he's doing. So then down the road, when those guys ultimately go to the NFL draft, all the recruiting ranking sites can kind of pound their chest and say, hey, look, we got it right. We had him as a four star. No, you didn't. You had him as a two star. They just went to a program that usually develops pretty dang well. And they ultimately end up with a lot of draft picks. So that's not knocking the recruiting sites. They have a business. I don't blame them for doing it the way they do it. And frankly, those that push back against that, they say, well, that's the way it should go. We should go off the coaches' evaluations. And if they think they're good enough to play at fill-in-the-blank university, then they should be rewarded with the star ranking that is appropriate. But TCU doesn't get the benefit of the doubt like that. That's why of the 85 players on their roster, only 22 were four- and five-star players. And you look at the likes of Georgia, 64 
of their 85 are four and five star players. Do you really think the discrepancy when you look at the talent is that significant? Because I've watched both teams on tape. And while there might be more NFL draft picks on Georgia's roster, tell you what, TCU is not taking much of a backseat with some of their personnel. So I don't, don't play the recruiting. I'm not saying recruiting stars don't matter, but don't let the websites and the star givers fool you. You are assigned your star ranking based on where you go to school. In some cases, not all cases, but in some cases. All right, so so let's say TCU wins, though. What will this do? Like, Sonny Dykes even said it to you the other day. You know, college football fans just look at big brands. And while TCU has proven over the course of, like, 20 years that they're a very good program, are they going to move to the upper echelon of big brands? Will this open the door for other, quote, un, you know, non-blue-chip programs to get the benefit of the doubt? Well, I see, but we're uh, approaching a point in the 12-team playoff that is coming to us. We're almost there. (laughs) We're approaching a point in which it's going to become a little bit more of a meritocracy where, hey, guess what? You make it in, you win your conference, you make it in, you are in control of your own destiny. Like you can win your championship. Like it's no longer like, oh, well, we got to decide between Ohio State and TCU. And, you know, Ohio State has more NFL dudes, so we'll probably lean with Ohio State. Like, if you're in the top 12, guess what? You're in. Hey, Tulane, come on down, baby. Let's go Let's go give it a run. You win the next three games, you're national champ. So we're starting to get away from the brand bias, if you will. But it's still, it's still going to exist. I mean, college football is the most like Major League Baseball. There is no salary cap. There, it's purely about what your program can do and how much you are willing to invest in your program. I mean, that's, and now in the NIL era, it's that more than ever before. So did the Yankees win the World Series every year? No, but they're, they're in the hunt pretty regularly. Did the Dodgers win the World Series every year? No, but they're in the hunt pretty regularly. Why? Because they spend more than everybody else. <laughs> they're more attractive destination for a lot of people because of the amount of resources that are put into their products. So I think that we're we're starting to get. I don't think that this necessarily changes things for college football in the long term. What's going to change, I think, is the fact that the college football playoff is going to be more inclusive. And ultimately, I don't know if it's really going to result in a whole lot of parity because right now, tell me this: Bama gets in in a twelve-team playoff. How dangerous are they? Tennessee gets in in a twelve-team playoff. How dangerous are they? you might ultimately end up seeing the same teams at the top of college football that you've always seen because you're just affording them more opportunities to mess up and yet still make the college football playoff. I mean, Bama just went roughshod through the team that beat TCU in the Big 12 championship. So right now, if Bama got in the playoff, how dangerous would they be? Pretty dang dangerous. And right now they're kept out, but in a 12-team playoff, they're going to get another chance. So those are the things you look... There's a lot of positives that come with the playoff expansion, but there's also a lot of negatives that come with the expansion. If you're in favor of a team like, say, TCU, you're thrilled because you're going to have more opportunities for entry. But you also need to acknowledge that there will be some big brands that are also afforded additional lives because of the expansion as well. So lot than lot that look, that's an off-season topic. We'll, we'll get to it. There's plenty of that. There's plenty of time to get to the expanded playoff, the positives, the negatives, et cetera. 
But I, I think if you're a fan of college football and you do not, you're not a fan of Georgia. I mean, no, no matter how you feel, I think you're probably wanting to see TCU win it. I think, I think you, as a as a casual college football fan, you see TCU win it. It gives you hope in thinking we can do that too. Like we can do that too. Now you got to have the stars aligned. You got to have a great team like TCU has. But if they can do it, why can't we? And that's, I think, a really good message to send to all of college football if TCU is victorious here in a few days. Let's Talk About It is brought to you by AT&T 5G. Too much college football is never too much with AT&T 5G. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. All right, time to look our attention into the mailbag, man. We have so many people that have reached out with great questions. Keep them coming. Alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on our Twitter at alwayscfb or on our Instagram at the exact same handle, alwayscfb. So hit us up there. You can send us your questions on there as well. We will get them into the show. If they're related to the national championship, we'll try our best to get them in right now. If they're for bigger picture, just hold tight. We'll get to them here as we start to approach the offseason, which makes me a little bit sad, but never mind that. We still have one great game to look forward to, so Coops, kick it off. All right, first one comes from Tim, asks, now that bowl season is over, except for the national championship game, rank the Power Five conferences on how they did in bowl games. See, a lot of people put a ton of stock into bowl performance. I've gotten away from that a little bit. I do think bowls can be beneficial, I do. I'm not going to sit here and be naive and tell you that bowls don't matter. Bowls matter. I mean, you could think of how many different examples. Like, how's Clemson feeling right now? Like, you know, how's Tennessee conversely feeling on the other side of of what was a fairly convincing victory? How's Tulane feeling right now? They feel pretty good. I mean, I, I think that there's plenty of different examples that can be taken from bowl games in which there's overreactions too. And I try to steer clear of that. And if we look at bowl season in general, uh, it was obviously a really good year for the Mac. I mean, <laughs> a very good year for them because even in some of their games, I mean, some of their performances were actually very admirable. Even in defeat, some of their performances we're very admirable. So that's got to make you feel pretty good. I feel like it was a decent year for, I mean, the Sun Belt, I guess. I, I mean, I like if I'm going to rank them, I'm going to rank them based on what you do more in the regular season than what you do in the postseason. I mean, I think that there were plenty of games, plenty of examples in which there was really good football being played. Do I think less of the Big Ten? because of their performances in the semifinal games? No, because I thought they played pretty well. Michigan shot themselves in the foot a couple times. Ohio State had a chance to win with eight seconds left on a 50-yard field goal. Like I, I don't feel any worse about them than I did. Do I feel really good about what Penn State is? Sure. Are they going to be able to carry 
The Big Ten, as far as perception is concerned, based on how they played in the Rose Bowl? No, because people are killing the Big Ten right now, unjustifiably so. But we also saw other Big Tens. We saw Iowa blank Kentucky. We saw... uh, No, we saw a couple other performances. Like I don't draw conclusions based on Purdue's performance against LSU. I don't draw conclusions based on Illinois' performance against Mississippi State. Like You are what you are individually, not collectively. So I'm going to abstain at this point from ranking bowl games and ranking performances by conference in bowl season because I just feel like that's completely unfair. Okay, all I did was pick bowl questions on this. I didn't know you. But I'm going to go ahead with the rest of the mailbag here. Because there are a lot about bowl questions and people have people have these questions. All right. Next one, Alex, he came back and asked, who had a bowl performance that got you excited to see him play next season? It'd have to be Joe Milton at Tennessee. One, look, it was a good defense that he's playing against. People will tell you, well, you know, Clemson was at less than 100 percent. While I agree with all that, we call the game. I don't need to, you know, I don't need the qualifiers. But there was one thing I was real interested in with Joe Milton is how would he handle the deep ball? How would he handle the pass rush? What kind of decisions would he make? Would he play instinctively? Thought he looked really good against Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt will throw some tricky looks at you as a quarterback. But my goodness, man, I mean, he was completely dialed in. There were a couple drops in the game, too. And yet there he is sitting there. 19-28, 19 to 28, 251 and three touchdowns en route to a convincing 31 to 14 victory. And like I said a moment ago, I have tremendous respect for Clemson. I have tremendous respect for their defensive coordinator, Wes Goodwin, and the different looks that he's going to try to create for the opposing quarterback. So uh, Joe Milton, knowing just the raw horsepower that he has, the guy's got freak show arm. I'm telling you, I think if he entered the NFL draft right now, he might be a day two pick because people would watch him work out like I did before the game. And I'd say, oh, my goodness, like that dude throws it like Jamarcus Russell. I mean, Jamarcus Russell had the best arm I've ever seen. So this guy could flat out throw it. But sometimes when he throws it as far as he can, like he does on occasion, that nobody in their right mind, Usain Bolt couldn't catch up on a deep ball to some of those deep balls that he throws. So he he's probably the guy right now that had the best bowl season as far as changing my perception of what he could be and what he ultimately might do in 2023. Okay, moving on. Next one from Carl. What a great bowl season. Question is, who is the one team that had a bowl win that will give them momentum and that people will be talking about in the offseason heading into 2023? <laughs> well, I can't pick Tennessee again, right? I have to I have to go in a different direction. The one thing that kind of frustrates me a little bit uh, is I don't feel like there's enough conversation being had about the Valero Alamo Bowl and the performance by the Washington Huskies. Well, it was, well, look, I know that Texas was at less than 100%. I know that they were without their two, arguably their two best offensive weapons. Like I'm not, I'm not denying any of that. But when you look at what Washington was able to do, yeah, they didn't play great defensively. They gave up a bunch of yards. But man, if you look at just how they played and just how much of the comfortable lead they had there at the end of the third quarter. Washington, y'all, you look at what they've done now in the portal. Dylan Johnson from Mississippi State, he's now heading to Washington. What they bring back, Michael Penix already said he's coming back. You have Braylon Trice at the end of the line of scrimmage, defensive end, he's coming back. Like They have some guys that are going to be real 
significant issues for a lot of folks. And I feel like Washington's bowl performance is kind of lost in the shuffle. More people have discussed what Texas wasn't as opposed to discussing what Washington was. Y'all, Kayla DeBoer in his first year just won 11 games. That is pretty remarkable and broke some offensive records in the process. Okay, they had a tough two-game stretch. They lose on the road at UCLA. They were totally hung over the following week and lost to Arizona State. Tough two-game stretch, but other than that, man, you win four in a row to start the season. Then you finish the game on a se- or finish the season on a seven-game win streak. Telling you, we're going to be talking all off season about USC. We're going to be talking all off season about Oregon. Everyone and their brothers going to be all over those two programs and the possibility of a massive leap in 2023. And no one's going to be talking about Washington, but let the records show you right now here on January 5th. Washington is going to be the most under-talked-about team of the offseason, and I'm telling you, they're going to shock some folks. People are going to forget how good they were, and yet they're going to show up next year, and they're going to dominate in a lot of ways. So Washington would be the team that we're not talking about enough, but also capped off what was a great season with an impressive bowl of victory. All right, last one here from Amanda. She wants to know, do you see any more coaching changes in college football coming this season? There are some NFL jobs opening up. I do. Um, look, without speculating, uh, I guess I am going to. Anytime you say without speculating or like no offense, like, or, you know, don't take this the wrong way, you know, like anytime you preface something with that, like you just know what's coming. Uh, I think Jim Harbaugh is going to the league. I mean, I just, I really do. I think he flirted with it last year, said, hey, no, no way, never doing it again. He only, I mean, he double stamped his legacy at Michigan by backing up what was an amazing performance in 2021. Did it again in 2022. People doubted them. People said, well, they won't be as good as last year. They're not going to be able to replace those defensive ends. They're going to have issues at quarterback. I don't know, man. Can they handle some of the... Look at what they got to replace on the offensive line. Like They're just losing way too much. Well, not only did they come back, I think they were better this year than they were last year. Felt like if the game became a track meet, they could keep up. And I wasn't sure that was the case last year. So if he gets the opportunity to go to a place like Indianapolis, potentially team up with Derek Carr, who's likely played his final game for the Las Vegas Raiders, if he gets an opportunity to go and do that, how could you blame him for for taking that up? Now, where does that go? I mean, that's, like I said, purely speculative, but I would be shocked, absolutely shocked, if there's not at least one massive move made by a college coach to the NFL. I'd be really surprised. So that's why you got to just keep it locked in here. We'll keep you updated. But uh, I don't think the carousel is officially done spinning just yet. All right, y'all. We're just a day away from when we get on our planes and start heading west. Look, no, it's not a private jet. I got to go through Charlotte or Dallas or Atlanta. I don't know which one. One of them. Uh, But anyways, we are so excited to get to Los Angeles. We have so much to look forward to between now and when we kick off for the national championship. You need to keep it locked in here on Always College Football on ESPN's YouTube channel or via the podcast. We're actually going to have some live shows with a live audience out there at FanFest on Sunday. 
in Los Angeles. Stay tuned here for more information. You can also check out our Twitter feed and Instagram feed at AlwaysCFB for the most up-to-date information about where we're going to be and what we're going to be covering. We also are going to do live Q&A. We're going to have some great players and you know, maybe Hall of Famers stop by. It's going to be awesome. Should be a fantastic weekend out on the West Coast for Always College Football. So we look forward to welcoming our audience out there. Also, please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out and it really helps the show out as well. So it's been so much fun today hitting all these different topics. We'll be back tomorrow. Start looking ahead to the game, diving in a little bit more specific to what we can expect on the field on Monday night. This has been Always College Football with Greg McElroy, presented by AT&T 5G. Too much college football is never too much with AT&T 5G.